And now, today's results. Euro 2020, Italy versus Turkey, match postponed. Copa America, Argentina versus Chile, match postponed. So La Liga is back, no longer under lockdown. Will Downing with you alongside my fellow commentators Mark Rodden, Stefan Jorni and Dimitro Zulai. So Therese Johag was in a solo 10,000 metres race at Athletics Impossible Games in Oslo on Thursday night, clocking the fastest time in the world this year. Nothing unusual about that, you might think, but she's actually a very highly successful cross-country skier, not an athlete at all. So, gentlemen, which sports person do you think would make a good footballer? Mark? Uh, I'm going to focus purely on Irish sports because uh, I did uh, a column in the Irish Times for about a year uh, about sporting passions and it was about sports people who were interested in other sports growing up or were very good at them. Um, So Gaelic footballers, Graham Geraghty was at Arsenal, Paul Flynn, Aston Villa a good few times, Anthony Toll went over to Manchester United at the age of 23, um, only to be told by Alex Ferguson that... uh, Maybe he was a bit too old and inexperienced to play. Katie Taylor, a big one as well. Uh, Irish international footballer, now the best boxer in the world. My favourite one, though, people in Ireland will be very familiar with the fact that um, if you played Gaelic sports, the national sports, up until not all that long ago, you were banned from playing football or soccer, as it's uh, called in certain parts of Ireland. One person, as I'm sure a lot of people got around this, but uh, one person who... Loved his uh, football was the former Donegal footballer and manager Brian McAniff. Not only did he play football, he played football in Canada, coached by uh, someone involved in the Hungary team in the 1954 World Cup. Uh, so he was a semi-professional soccer player, earning more than the likes of Bobby Moore was earning in England at the time because uh, there was a wage cap in England. To make it even better, that story even better, he came back to Ireland and was playing away for Donegal, playing Gaelic football. But on the side, he was playing uh, soccer down in Cork uh, under a false name, John Rooney. So <laughs> no one knew. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of um, of our national games. If only some of our athletes and Gaelic footballers were playing football, then uh, maybe our national team would be a lot better now. It's a tricky question because uh, we've seen in the past, you know, few players, well, few athletes try to change sport or move to different directions. Like Michael Jordan was a perfect example from, you know, uh, basketball to uh, baseball. And uh, But however, I've got a case, you know, in France, would you believe? It's nothing to do with football because I find it very difficult. We had Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt was a disaster. He went to Dortmund and uh, we know we know it's done. You know, sponsor play a huge part of it. Went to Australia and... Uh, he just realized that it was not for him. And uh, the, the perfect example, we start about football. It's about handball. And uh, an Olympic champion called uh, Florent Maloudou. He was a swimmer, a French swimmer. He won the Olympics a few times, uh, 50 meters. And he decided, you know, to, uh, after retirement, early retirement from swimming, decided to, uh, to go to handball. It's the first sport he played in France. And... Uh, and he was offered a contract, a pro contract in the Premier League in handball and uh, didn't take it and went back swimming. Look, Will, I'm not a firm believer about people switching and uh, moving sport. I think uh, we have, you know, a few, few examples in Ireland because of the Gaelic and you could have 
some players can move from one spot to the other, but nowadays it's coming, you know, very, very uh, more challenging, you know, to become uh, a top athlete from one spot to the other and takes time. Well, if I remember correctly, Andy Murray was actually doing some football before he dedicated himself to tennis. But I think it was a much better choice for him because otherwise he would be the typical Scottish loser in football, just like so many of them now. And he became one of the most successful tennis players in history. So also, it's really interesting to think, you know, because we know Usain Bolt even tried to do some football and without much success, even though he is fast and people are saying that the faster you run, the better than you will play football. Wasn't the thing though with Usain Bolt? It clearly was a sponsor's. Yeah, Puma. Uh, yeah, but but also he was trying to do it at the age of 30, 31. It was ridiculous, you know. He was, he was never <laughs> it never going to show. It was really funny. Yeah. To me, sorry, to me it's an insult, you know, to uh, players who tried, you know, to become professional at fifteen and focusing on one sport. Uh, it's it's you know, I mean, football. Like if we take the example of Usain Bolt, it's a very you know a skillful game. It's very difficult and, you know, I'm sorry to say that, but, you know, I look at some footage and uh, it appears to me like Hussein Bolt was, like, you know, a, a two left-footed. Like, that's all you can say. I mean, that's the truth. He couldn't pass the ball. I saw some footage with Dortmund. I mean, if you look at technically the way he was passing the ball, I mean, I think some, some manager made some remarks alongside, look, I mean, we know it's a sponsor thing and uh, he went to Man United because, you know, being Olympic champion, we've been well-renowned and uh, it opens your door, but, Ultimately, when it comes to the uh, on the pitch to be able to deliver, it comes from a long way. It's a different, you know, become you know a one one in meters, you know, champion, and be a striker or winger playing for uh, a professional team. It's a to- totally different job. There was a thought as well that he might become a wide receiver in the NFL. There was supposedly serious thought about that, but that didn't happen either. He's having a happy retirement at the moment, anyway, from what I can see. There goes your chance. There goes your chance, Will, of getting Usain Bolt on the show. Have interviewed him before, actually. Um, I'm sure I've got a really long anecdote about that. Anyway, La Liga is back underway with El Gran Derby. Sevilla beat Real Betis 2-0 with Spanish TV adding in an artificial backdrop of fans as well as artificial noise. Both goals around the R mark from Lucas Acampos from the spot and Fernando. The derby was on paper, but not on the pitch, obviously. Uh, it was one-way traffic. Um, Sevilla was dominating the game. And unfortunately, uh, Mark Batra... Uh, Foul, Luke de Jong in the box, and there was a penalty uh, given, you know, to uh, Sevilla. And uh, Campos scored the, the first goal. And after that, it was just one with traffic. And uh, it's unfortunate. And I was expecting a little bit more from that derby. But it seems Sevilla was uh, really in good form, like really fit compared to uh, Betis, who was struggling physically, I felt, on the night. And the good news, you know, for the league, that uh, that win, see basically Sevilla coming back at in the, uh, the table, so eight points to uh, Barcelona. And I think Sevilla would play Barcelona at home in a few weeks' time or a few days' time because there's a, you know, more or less a game, two or three or four games every day in La Liga. Tevas has well prepared you know, his, uh, his schedule and his plan to sell his product across you know, the, uh, the media. So it's good, good news for Sevilla and uh, a serious contender for the Champions League qualification for next season. And uh, it's good to see them as a level. Barcelona are up Mallorca Saturday night. Real Madrid host Ibar. Porto are top in Portugal, edging past Maritimo 1-0, while Benfica were held 2-2 by Porto Menense. 
Uh, Porto lead by two points with eight games to go. Legia Warsaw now 10 points clear in Poland after beating Arca Gdynia 5-1. Arca had gone in front. Salzburg is seven points clear in Austria with Champions Last Linz gaining just one point from the first three games back. Salzburg won 5-1 at Sturm Graz. Lask fell 1-0 at home to Rapid Vienna who are now second. Bayern Munich will play Bayer Leverkusen in the German Cup final after wins over Eintracht Frankfurt and fourth flight Saarbrücken respectively. And the new season kicks off in Iceland this weekend. Kaor are the champions. Dimitro, what have you been watching this week? Well, of course, Sevilla Benis as well, but also Portuguese, uh, some Hungarian games. Uh, as for Sevilla Betis, it's interesting that when uh, Kiki Setien was managing Betis, some fans were complaining. I don't know what exactly they were complaining about, but they got rid of Kiki Setien. They have a new manager now. They're not playing better. They don't have more points. And it was especially interesting to see yesterday how Sevilla just outplayed them. And also, Stefan, I think we should mention Jules Koundé. Oh, yeah. Because the guy is playing really well. I remember when he was with Bordeaux. As I understand, he was a right back, but it was Gustavo Paget who put him in the center. And he has been progressing really, really well. Yeah, I agree 110% with you. I mean, he should have scored last night, you know, in the area. A good chance, you know, a header. But massive improvement. But again, you know, Sevilla is a club which transform some players and they will move up, you know, to bigger clubs. And Jun Kunde could be one of the, the, the players who follow, you know, uh, a bigger club, you know, the next, you know, maybe year or two. Campos, he was unbelievable last time. You know, a player who's in Marseille was struggling at times, you know, technically. And back he'll pass, you know, and uh, the second goal was uh, magnificent. It was, you know, it was brilliant. Like, you know, a moment of brilliance for Campos. In Marseille, was loved because he was a, a player who's committed physically, like a typical legend, you know, player from the South America. He seems, you know, going to Sevilla, he changed, his game changed again and uh, he's technically a different player. So, surprising. Well, I, I'd say technically, he's been like that all the time. It's just really, sometimes he struggled in France. Uh, I, I don't know why, but maybe because the situation in the club was different, something like that. But uh, he is really talented player and he's shown it in Sevilla now. And we have to give credit to Monchi as well for bringing all those players because he got Diego Carlos from Nantes who was doing really well for Nantes and he decided okay we will take a compass even though it might have seemed as a risk at first but now all these players are among the best in Sevilla squad and it's funny because the link between uh, Monchi and Sevilla in France they go a lot you know uh, to France to uh, some players and unexpected sometimes like Jules Koundé I mean it was a surprise and uh, Fernando for example as well different player in Sevilla who came from uh, Turkey and usually when you go to Turkey to a certain age it's more or less your semi-retirement and Sevilla Monchi had a good idea to go and get him and uh, a different player and Torres has been pretty good because as you know like uh, Banegas is on the bench he's going to leave Sevilla the second time uh, free and he's going to uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, but Torres has been as well quite instrumental this season and pushing uh, Banegas on the bench Mark what have you been watching this week? I was uh, following Porto's game against uh, Maritimo on uh, Wednesday. Dour 1-0 win for Porto, but enough to put them two points top, uh, two points clear at the top uh, ahead of Benfica, who threw away a two-goal lead at uh, Porto Monense, who are second bottom. Um, that's off the back of a nil-all draw. First time out for Benfica at home to Tondela, who are 14th and struggling themselves. So, real crisis for Benfica. Their form has deserted them completely. They haven't won now in uh, five league games going back uh, before the uh, corona-enforced break. And speaking of the 
word, Corona. Jesus Corona has scored uh, both of Porto's goals so far since the resumption in a 2-1 defeat at Famalicao and that 1-0 defeat against uh, Maritimo, who are way down at 15th. Um, really unconvincing from Porto. They're not playing very well, but uh, Benfica have really blown their chance. Eight games to go, and uh, Porto have a very easy run for the next few matches. So real pressure on Benfica, who have already lost to Porto twice this season as well. So um, I'd make uh, Porto the favourites to win in Portugal now. So a lot of you were obviously watching, like me, uh, El Grand Derby last night. What did you make of the fake fans? Because that looked really, really strange. You know, I've been thinking, uh, because they're using the same stuff in Korea, they used it uh, in Portugal, as uh, we heard from Khan. I'm just wondering, how long will it take clubs to understand that they actually don't need fans in the, in the, <laughs> in the stadium? Because you don't have any... Uh, negative chanting you can only play whatever you want no honestly it was it was funny in Korea when Incheon were I think 4-1 down at home and the only chanting that you can hear were positive stuff you know no one booed the team it was interesting but of course you do miss real fans in the in the ground and that's something that has to happen now just because of the situation but uh, maybe some people would think that this is the way. Found again, Will. I mean, uh, yes. I mean, you have apparently you have the options uh, in Spain with uh, mix sound, crowd sound, and also some uh, stats. Look, they're trying, you know, to compensate, you know, the uh, lack of atmosphere and with different type of options and solutions. But that's obviously uh, it's a temporary. Uh, patch and hopefully uh, crowds will be back at some point you know in the near future um, we talk about in France you know for the French French Cup and League Cup maybe uh, 30,000 being allowed in, in, in the stadium so yeah it's in two rounds time they're going to allow fans back in in Poland so basically next weekend essentially it, it, it honestly did look strange so I think you're doing the same in the NFL but hopefully not like that it didn't work really well but as you said Stefan pretty much a, a one-way derby for you at least but the goals came relatively late I was impressed by, you know, the uh, offit and prepare CV uh, was and uh, when they started the game, it was, as I say, a derby uh, on the paper, but not on the pitch. And that was a problem. And a uh, few, play- few players, you know, definitely shine last night. And uh, you look at uh, Lucas Campos was uh, magnificent. And also um, you had uh, Torres in the Lepin player. It was very, very interesting. Uh, Munia El Adadi, quite instrumental on the, um, on the left side uh, for Sevilla. Jules Koundé as well at the back, you know, Diego Carlos. I mean, it's again, Sevilla, every season they manage, you know, to pull, you know, a good side with good new signings. But uh, Lucas Ocampos was uh, quite impressive. His back heel pass for the second goal. Uh, Luc Dion was fouled in the box by Marc Bartra, the ex Dortmund and uh, Barca player. Ocampos transformed the penals and the penal. And, uh, but Sevilla, well deserved, you know, well deserved win against Real Betis. Uh, very, very disappointing, uh, Real Betis. Uh, I was expecting a little bit more from Nabil Fekir, who signed, you know, last season, well, this season, you know, from Lyon. And Real Betis was uh, was definitely, uh, well, not at the level required to, uh, to play a league again. Definitely against Sevilla, who is a serious contender uh, for the Champions League next season. They were third at the table, eight points behind Barca, and they will play Barcelona, I think, a couple of weeks uh, at home. And maybe uh, it could be an interesting game, and maybe uh, for Real Madrid... Uh, you know, an option to uh, go top again. 
Sevilla find themselves six points behind Real Madrid. Can you see them breaking into the top two? Barcelona are eight points ahead of Sevilla at this stage and two clear of Real. Well, it's a funny one because, you know, uh, Javier Tebas is looking at maybe, you know, to uh, allow 30% of uh, the stadium be full with uh, fans. Bernabeu been renovating at the minute and uh, so they're going to play at the, tra- the training grounds and they can only uh, hold 5,000 uh, people, uh, you know, the Real Madrid training ground. So it means 30% is only like 2,000 people. So it's going to be an issue, uh, fans, and uh, for Real playing, you know, the training ground, you know, how the players will react. And also, you know, the professional, it's a massive club, but it's going to be a funny story, like, to see Real playing at the, on the training ground. Like, that could have a sad effect on the results as well. So it'll be interesting to see Real in the first game at home and how they're going to react uh, playing on the training ground against Eber. Obviously, there's, there's more than just the title race going on there, Dimitro. It's looking like a good title race, but could you see Sevilla getting involved? And then there's a, a big joust, Real Sociedad, Hatafe battling over fourth place at the moment. Atletico Madrid are a point behind them. Valencia, another three points down. No, Sevilla will be aiming at being in the top four, and something really bad must happen to Barcelona and Real Madrid for any other club to interfere in that title race. It's about those two. So for Sevilla, it's very important to get that win in the first game back, especially in a derby. And they'll be looking at the teams behind them, trying to keep that gap. As for the Real Madrid training ground, the second team plays there. Uh, They broadcast their games on uh, Real Madrid TV. They played there on the 19 for Youth League. So you can broadcast from there. Another thing is how players will feel. Because... Bernabeu, even when it's empty, it's so imposing. You go there, you stand there, you look at them, and you just look, oh, God. You just can't really imagine how teams from s- smaller towns feel when they step out on that pitch. Now it's going to be a small stadium, even now it's named after the greatest of them all, Alfredo Di Stefano. Well, it's still a training ground. It- it's, well, it's a small pitch. It's not exactly the training ground, let's say. It's, it's uh, the stadium where the second team plays. So it's interesting to see how the opposing teams will react to that as well. Maybe it will be a bit easier for them, I don't know. But losing Bernabeu, in a way, is something that Real Madrid probably wouldn't want to do. But that's their decision. And we'll see how it goes. And you know, Will, uh, well, that's a funny story. Like, uh, I think, you know, a few days ago, Enrique Cereso, the uh, president of uh, Atletico Madrid, was interviewed by some, uh, well, Spanish media. And he was, uh, one question, you know, uh, from one journalist and asking basically, uh, would he be uh, prepared, you know, to welcome at the Wanda Metropolitano, uh, the Real Madrid, because they have no stadium. If, you know, the 30%, you know, um, Allowance given by Tebas to uh, to get you know support at the stadium and uh, <laughs> and he said yes <laughs> and you know I don't think he realized that you know the uh, Real Madrid supporters obviously will never accept that of Antonio Perez but even himself as you know the Atletico uh, Madrid chairman or president giving a positive you know feedback you know for you know welcoming uh, Real at the stadium I find it a bit odd and I'm sure the fans from Atletico won't be very impressed about you know that that answer. It was a good diplomatic answer, although not necessarily the one I expected. And the Vicente Calderon is just about being entirely demolished now. The final bits of the stand were coming down in the past 24 hours, which is a real shame because that was a glorious stadium and really imposing and maybe just helped quite a bit to the success of Atletico over the last 20 years and beyond that. On the fans, Will, I think it is um, 
it's a real shame and it's uh, it it is making a difference because we've seen in the Bundesliga I think it's only 20% of home teams have won that's down from about uh, 45 43% something like that I felt it made a big difference to Porto on Wednesday um you know some teams end up being beaten before they take the pitch against uh, some of the bigger teams so perhaps it's not that bad a thing in that sense but just the same energy wasn't there for Porto and it does end up hurting the smaller teams as well. We've seen Union Berlin in the Bundesliga really struggling. Well, not really struggling, but not getting results that maybe they would have if they had their fans, you know, which is such a big thing for them. I agree with Mark because uh, I'm looking at, you know, one fixture definitely to watch uh, Bilbao against uh, Atletico Madrid on the, on the 14th. And uh, Bilbao, San Manes, you know, big club, definitely with the fans will be a different uh, game, but... How Bilbao with a proto game, you know, with um, with no one in the stadium, with uh, against United you know, Madrid, with you know, if you know the the best season so far, the six on the table, you know, and um, only a few points away from the uh, only one point away from the fourth spot, uh, which you know, Real Sociedad doing quite well, but uh, it's it's a surprise, you know, it's definitely have you know detrimental effect for some of the smaller clubs and uh, like clubs like Bilbao, maybe Celta Vigo, Levante. Uh, you know, like Sevilla, like the derby last night, it's a different atmosphere because the derby is one, to me, like one of the best derby in the world, like uh, between uh, Betis and Sevilla. And it's not the same with, uh, you know, with other fans. And then on Wednesday in uh, Serbia, there was the Serbian Cup semi, which had fans. I don't think it was a full stadium, but great scenes between uh, Partizan and Red Star with Partizan winning through to the final. So, you know, <laughs> the fans certainly make a difference and... We missed them at matches. Yeah, they've allowed them in, in Hungary at this stage. I think pretty much the bottom tier we were saying last week was full for the Hungarian Cup final. But, I mean, the situation we've seen in Portugal, Mark, because you've been working on that midweek, didn't get to see the games because I was working on the Polish. But Porto struggled to a 1-0 win. Benfica drew. Porto, advantage for them again. Two points clear now. Yeah, Khan on last week's show was saying that uh, Benfica's stadium announcer was treating it as a normal game playing in the crowd noise and that didn't have any effect because Benfica couldn't get a goal against uh, Tondela. Porto scored early great goal from Jesus Corona but did very little apart from that they were lucky that uh, Maritimo didn't take their chances early on in the game and then the last hour or so was really poor um, Alex Telles really influential for Porto uh, from left back just back from suspension got himself sent off but to me, it doesn't seem like it will make all that much difference that Porto aren't playing very well because Benfica have dropped uh, four points already against teams lower down the table. And Porto with a two-point advantage at this stage of the season, it's really an extra point on top of that because they've beaten Benfica twice already and it goes on head-to-head record in Portugal. So it'll be... A surprise, I think, at this stage if Porto don't uh, see it out because they have such an easy run until the last couple of games. So man who guided Real Sociedad to fourth in La Liga at the start of the last decade, former Nottingham Forest boss, Lons, etc. Philippe Montagnier is the new coach of Standard Liège. Had looked as if it might be Remy Guy, the former Aston Villa boss, but it is Montagnier instead... I think you know it's a terrible appointment uh, for uh, for Standard, and uh, if you could let Standard, usually there's a kind of a, a certain way of uh, playing football in Standard, you know, attacking minded, you know, usually like uh, 
uh, teams and um, I, I look at you know Philippe uh, Montagnier's you know career and uh, yes he had a good spell in France when he was in Boulogne you know promoted the, the team from national to uh, league one and that spell you know allowed him to move you know for bigger things but ultimately like his style of football you know it's very conservative you know I mean I, I really like you know to compare you know coaches sometimes but uh, it reminds me a bit you know Felice Mazou very uh, defensive you know mindset and you have to remember when uh, he took over the uh, Real Sociedad and he came out, you know, from a, a good a good spell again with some French clubs and uh, they thought, you know, the first experience Real Sociedad with Renal Donoix, they believed that Philippe Montagnier was more or less in the same type of breed of uh, coaches, but they were very in the opposite, you know, in terms of philosophy. And uh, and for the first year, they did quite well. Well, they, they finished, I think, 15th and second year, like, you know, fifth in the table. But Philippe Montagnier, like, you know, the story behind the team basically was not as rosy as in fact, you know, the sporting director decided to put, you know, Montagnier on the sideline. They realized it was a wrong call. And it's uh, Jacoba uh, Arasate. In fact, he took over the training session. And he became, after Montagnier leaving uh, Real Sociedad, the uh, new manager of Real Sociedad in 2013. But, you know, it's not due to Montagnier's experience as a coach who uh, put Real Sociedad, you know, the, the top place in La Liga, but, you know, Jacoba Arasate. And at the end, basically, Montagnier... Uh, the sporting director, you know, told him, like, you know, not to pick up, uh, to select the team. It was uh, Jacob Barasati, and the sporting director was, uh, was in charge of the team selection. And the training session was taken by Jacob Barasati. And people don't, don't necessarily know knows about that story, but it is true. Like, uh, Philippe Montagny was uh, definitely a disaster in Real Sociedad. He went to uh, Nottingham Forest, didn't, you know, struggle as well. And in run was uh, was equally not really good, you know, time for Montagny. And uh, hopefully he can, you know, he bounced back with uh, Lance, with, you know, promotion last season. This season, you know, obviously the virus, you know, stopped uh, the, uh, the league to league uh, quite early. But Montagny again managed to, go, to bring uh, Lance to the Premier League. He should have done that last season. So, you know, in order all, I hope, you know, he will do well in Saint-Aliège. But his tracking record, you know, to me... Uh, would definitely raise some question about his ability to provide, you know, attacking football in a team, a competitive team, you know, in a foreign, in a foreign league. Fourth in La Liga, that's some disaster for Real Sociedad. Look, again, you know, if I look at, you know, that, uh, that uh, they had, they had, you know, Philippe Montagnier and really like, uh, it was difficult because they had a great experience with Renal Denoix. Uh, again, you know, a pure produce for Nantes. Uh, Nantes is uh, one of the teams in France in the 80s and 70s, 80s and 90s were producing that kind of football like, Attacking football with space on movement and then and, and passing and so it's more or less what you see in Ajax or Barcelona and they really believe by Sunny Montagnier will be exactly a copycat of Renal Denoix's uh, philosophy and, and style but <laughs> it was not the case it's more like Felice Mazou like big guys at the back you know physical team and you know your team playing you know quite deep uh, I've been commentating on almost every game of Real Sociedad in that second season of Philippe Montagnier. Against Valladolid, uh, away from home, they were trailing 2-0. They equalized. Starting from that game, they were playing exciting, attractive, attacking football. Jacob Arasate then managed Real Sociedad, managed Numancia, now he's managing Osasuna. Never even came close to playing that kind of football. So I simply don't believe that Jacob Arasate could have picked the team and he could have made them play that style of football. Because I was watching almost every game, maybe even every game that season. It was difficult for Montagnier. Right, first season, they were struggling. Fans wanted him out. 
And then the president said, okay, because of what he did at Valenciennes before he uh, came to Real Sociedad, I'll support him. Lauren, the sporting director at the time, well, I don't know what he was saying. It was actually a good idea probably uh, to try to get some information from the club because, of course, they wouldn't open up on that. But I'm just talking about what I saw on the pitch. The team played some really good football in the second half of the season. One of the best. They deserved to be fourth. And then the sporting director offered this one year of new contract to Philippe Montagnier and he decided to quit because he wanted to. Okay, that's how it was officially. We don't know what was happening behind the scenes, but I just don't believe that Jacob Barasata could have made the team play that way. Well, I, I think, uh, Mitro, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but, you know, if you look at him, uh, I mean, I know Philippe Montagnier pretty well in terms of what he's done in France. It's, it's, it's awful football. I mean, you can look at what he's done, you know, with Lance. It's a very, very physical team. So you look at in Rennes, he had, you know, I don't know, two or three seasons in Rennes. It was a disaster. The fans wanted him out, you know, for a long time. And Real Sociedad, maybe, you know, that's your opinion, but, you know, I know from, you know, internal sources that that's exactly what happened. They didn't want to keep Montagnier. There was, you know, as you said, an off on the table. Maybe it was on the table, but ultimately, like, there was a disagreement in terms of, you know, the team should, the team should have been playing. And, you know, and truly, from internal sources, he was not in the training again. The, the uh, team selection was, you know, all of his hands. And at reliable sources on my side, definitely. The guys basically working on the, uh, covering, you know, the consequence for the French, uh, uh, the, uh, for French, you know, football in Spain. And uh, he was following, obviously, Philippe Montagnier. And it was a major disappointment in Real Sociedad because, again, as I said, they really, really believe that, you know, what he's done, you know, for um, uh, Boulogne. And uh, they believe, you know, they were following, you know, Renaldo Dweck's, you know, style. But, you know, Philippe Montagnier doesn't play that way. He's not an attacking, you know, minding coach. We've seen it with Nottingham Forest. We've seen it, you know, with Rennes. I've seen it with Lance again this season. It's not the case. And maybe, you know, I mean, look, I didn't watch every single game, you know, the time for Real Sociedad. But I can guarantee you 110% Mitro, that's exactly what happened. He was not in charge of the training session anymore. He was not in charge of picking up the team. So now we have to find out who made him play like that. I don't know. That's a good well, question. The, the Belgian press has done some interviews with former players who've said that he is capable of playing attacking football. In his first spell at Valenciennes, Nicolas Bento said they were called the Barcelona of the North. We'll wait and see. The context is that Standard aren't that big a club anymore, really, that they can attract huge names. Last champions in 2009, you look at their coaches over the last few years Michel Prudhomme obviously uh, was a big name but Alexander Jankovic, Yannick Ferreira Jose Riga Ivan Vukomanovic, Guy Luzon you know it's that they're not huge names and they spent I think 30 million last year on signings obviously they lost a couple of big players and that paid for itself and that they lost uh, Musa Gineppo, Razvan Marin Guillermo Ochoa but the coming season, they're going to have to rely a lot on younger players. And uh, that is the focus, really, that Montagnier's got to come in as an experienced, calm coach and someone who can work in uh, under difficult financial circumstances at a big club and cope with the pressure. So it is a bit of a gamble. I think he's only got a one-year contract with the option of another. But I think it's a fascinating appointment, really, because... Um, 
but you know it's 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 a gamble but there's a lot to be gained for it from both standards point of view and Montagnier's point of view if it comes off well i think you know it's surprising you know what uh, you know mark you mentioned that you know the barcelona uh, uh, what do you say what, do you, what it was called barcelona of the north valenciennes that's that's former former valenciennes player uh, nicola pento back in between 2009 and 2011 if you talk to french coaches like just like that you know off record like an kind of anonymous you know view that you know that's not the case like i mean i'm, I'm surprised like i mean i've seen you know, some of the games i, I know in valenciennes when he started to play in boulogne when he took over boulogne he did a remarkable job i, mean, I can't deny that from the third division up to the premier league you know in france it was really good like but you know that attacking you know mind i you know i just you know very skeptical about it and i say for to you like you pointed out the problem with um we saw Aliash to to get you know the right coach and rightly so and and that's going to be an issue to uh, uh, to to get the right you know the right people. I was thinking maybe our Hans Vanzenbroek, but obviously they're looking for a French-speaking you know coach, and that could be a, you know one of the reasons you know he didn't go there because to me he has been a very successful manager in Belgium, even though he had you know difficulty on intellect, but the intellect you know is a difficult club, and maybe you know Stan Aliash could have been you know more appropriate you know for. Uh, for maybe a Belgian coach than, you know, getting, you know, a foreign coach like uh, Philippe Montagnier. But, you know, time will tell, you know, if it's made the right decision. But again, Saint-Liège is a club is in, you know, crisis and with serious, you know, some financial problem as well. Now, Standard Liège is a crisis. Andelect, that's a crisis. I, I, I'm always suspicious of nicknames like that. Barcelona, the Bosphorus is what um, Baku are supposed to be. And, you know, you've got the Messi of the Carpathians and stuff like that. You know, you get 20 or 30 nicknames like that. And there's, there's only one Barcelona apart from the one in South America. What I'm saying is it's the truth is maybe somewhere in between, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you can't deny that. But, you know, to me, like, uh, again, you know, the perfect example, you know, Mark, you know, I don't know, you follow the league one, you've done games as well or will. But if you remember, you know, Philippe Montaigne is, uh, when he was in Rennes in, I think he was in, I don't remember, it's 2013, 14 or 15, I can't remember. Mm. But that was awful football. Really, like, I'm not joking. I mean, I watched some of the games. It was, you watch, you know, for 20, 25 minutes. And you know that Matt Spear was saying, like, on my blog bar, you know, on en place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's exactly it, like, <laughs> unfortunately, you know. That was a lot of games in Ligue 1 around then, though. Uh, do you remember when Standard appointed Sapinto? Yeah. And I thought he would fail. I was sure he would fail. And what happened? Sapinto started really bad. And then during the season, the team and they even were sort of contenders for the title. It was amazing because really looking at Sapinto's career before that, he was here, he was there just for a year, maybe for a year and a half. And then suddenly in that particular club, something clicked for him because Standard is a really weird club now. You can't really say what to expect from them. That's the thing. So Montagnier goes there. It is a risk for him. It is a risk for the club. But sometimes you just don't really know what's going to happen, especially with this particular team. That's a gamble. Absolutely. I agree with you. And uh, Will, you want to add something, I guess? The real pity about Sapinto, though, is they finished second. Their best finish pretty much since they last won the title, you know, joint best finish. 
And then he gets turfed out because Prudhomme is available. And uh, the Belgian job was what Prudhomme really wanted out of the game for a year, having you know guided Club Bruce to the title, had their Champions League campaign. He was out for the 17-18 season. So Pinto finished second. Prudhomme comes in. And they just haven't hit the heights that they really wanted to. And it's a real shame because he's had such a glittering coaching career, Prudhomme. And he's decided to leave and become vice president a year early. Sapinto won the cup that year as well, Will. But uh, I think um, I'm not so sure that it would have lasted at standard because um, from what I heard, it was there was always disagreements, not necessarily with the players, but with the board. Um, so that was part of the reason he, he went as well. And his record afterwards, you know, didn't do very well with Legia and seemed to be doing okay with Braga. But again, internal problems there. He was turfed out as well. So... Yeah, Prudhomme, Prudhomme was just tired, tired of day-to-day coaching. He loves it, but he's he's over 60 now and uh, will miss it. But I think he'll uh, enjoy his uh, role in the boardroom as well. And what, what surprised me as well about the appointment of Philippe Montagnier, I mean, we talk about Philippe Montagnier. Can you imagine if we had a, you know, a topic about Marcelo Bielsa or Guardiola? I mean, we spent maybe two hours talking about, you know, those people, but... Uh, just going back on the appointment of Montagnier, I'm surprised that, you know, the club didn't go for Eric de Flandre or even Mbalai as, you know, this assistant because a bit of continuity, they were in the staff. I'm surprised that they didn't go for Eric de Flandre. I thought, you know, he would have been the next, you know, coach for Standard Liège. So it was a bit of a shock appointment, you know, for me, Philippe Montagnier, even though the experience, but they would, could have gone to the internal route and look at, you know, Eric de Flandre, knowing the staff and the players really well in the club. So, I mean, it didn't happen. And there's no, there's no, I mean, again, like, you know, I don't know, Philippe Montagnier will come with his staff, Eric Dauphin will be kept, and Mbalai, I don't know, like, you know, what's going to happen to those two. It depends in Belgium, though, doesn't it? I, because I know certainly in the Netherlands, the backroom teams always stay. When Steve McLaren went to FC 28, it was just him, and I think he was allowed one assistant and nothing else. All the rest of the staff stayed in. It's never a case, like, with Sam Allardyce bringing 40 people in at Newcastle United. That that just doesn't tend to happen in the likes of Belgium and the Netherlands. So probably Montagnier will only be allowed one or two of his generals and nothing else. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's, I think it's a pity because, you know, I mean, for a new manager coming to a new club, I guess, you know, they want to bring your own staff, which is completely understandable. But ideally, you want to keep one, you know, one maybe assistant coach from the previous, you know, uh, uh, the previous staff that, you know, to be on board and at least give you, uh, you know, continuity. He will know, like the front and Bala will know the players quite well, even though they will love, you know, people leaving uh, during the uh, uh, the summer market. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. Maybe in Belgium, they just don't have enough money to be so many people coming and going every year. That's the reason. Too true. If you, if you look at Anderlecht, they've done that, you know, every season, you know, manager coming and going and uh, players, you know, coming and going in standard would have done that a, a bit as well. Sometimes you lose complete track of the number of players they have in the squad. It's quite amazing. It's only really happened at Anderlecht, though, under the, the current ownership, which came in a couple of years ago. They were fairly, you know, stable and regular league winners prior to that. But the way they're looking right now might be a few years before we see them at the top again, which for Belgium might not be necessarily a bad thing. As we were saying during the news, things have opened up for Salzburg again, a big lead. Yeah, uh, unfortunate for Lask, who were going for their first title and uh, went from league leaders to trailing Salzburg by three points after the uh, deduction for uh, going back training too early. And it's been a bit of a nightmare for Lask. They've actually played three games since the resumption 
one up in the first one they ended up losing in the 93rd minute they got a last minute equaliser themselves in the second game and then they conceded with three minutes to go against Rapid Vienna in midweek so uh, Lask are now fourth and actually battling to even get back into Europe next season let alone or forget about the title so Rapid Vienna seven points behind Salzburg and Salzburg have been brilliant cup winners 5-0 uh, since that, they've won 2 0 against Rapid Vienna, who are second, 6 0 against Hartburg, 5 1 against Durham Graz. And uh, they lost Erling Haaland to Kumi Minamino, but the new generation are coming. Whether they'll be there for another season is uh, another question. But Pat Sandaka, Zambian 21 year old attacker, five goals in three games, 22 and 24 in the league now. And uh, Dominic Zsoboszlai, the Hungarian 19 year old. Got two in the cup final and a hat-trick last time out. So um, watch out for those Salzburg players and their manager, Jesse Marsh, who uh, mightn't be there at the end of the season either. So breaking Friday news is that the Turkish League, which also gets underway tonight, the leaders, Trabzonspor away at Gustepe, you'll actually be able to see it in Britain and Ireland. Here we are constantly plugging the Portuguese and the Polish and the Danish leagues on Premier Sports and Free Sports. BT have just got the Turkish League. Trabzonspor are top, level on to- points with Bursaksa here, who play tomorrow against Anyalyaspor. And Galatasaray in third, three points behind. They play on Sunday away at Rizespor. You could see it previously in our part of the world, but only in Turkish. And I actually remember in the magnificent Epicurean food hall, which is sadly no longer with us, they used to show in the Turkish restaurant there, Turkish live Turkish football all the time, which is one of the great memories of Dublin, which is no longer around. But that's a bit of a capture. Well done on that, BT. And, I mean, it's a good title race. Four points dividing Trabzonspor. Basaksa here, level on points. Galatasaray third, Sivaspor in fourth. Yeah, it's quite an exciting title race, probably one of the most tightest in Europe at the moment. And it's interesting that Besiktas and Fenerbahce are not involved. Of all the big three clubs, it's only Galatasaray, but Trabzonspor fans will point out that their club is also big historically. They had some titles as well and they're top of the league now. It's interesting to see Istanbul Basaksa here being there because they've done well over the last few years. But when you mentioned that you watched the Turkish League in the Epicurean Food Hall, I have to say something about that as well. 1991. I don't know how. I still don't understand it. Somehow in Ukraine, we started getting a channel that was called Star TV. And that was a channel for Turkish immigrants who lived in Germany. And they had all the Turkish football, of course, in Turkish some uh, games in European competitions of Turkish clubs. So that's, it was 1991. That was the first time I actually watched some Turkish league games. It was, it was, it was amazing. Now, Star TV, I remember very well because they had the rights to Ireland's Euro 2000 playoff against Turkey, home and away. And they wanted a million pounds millions million euros or plus in today's money for the away leg for Ireland and obviously nobody paid it uh there was thought that the government might actually put some money towards it so that would appear on tv but in the end it wasn't so that playoff you know it's all centralized contracts now that was never shown on Irish television and there were a whole load of bars who tilted their satellite dishes got the radio commentary on and so we watched the Turkish television coverage of that World Cup playoff, Turkey against Ireland. But days like that are obviously long gone now that we've got centralised contracts through UEFA. And that's a good reason why. Because there was a big row, don't know if you remember in France, about the France 
Ireland playoff for the 2010 World Cup because the FAI had sold the rights to a non-preferred channel over in France and there was a lot of war about that. Yeah, that's right, Will. Back, you know, the uh, the Turkish League, you know, what Nitro mentioned, it's very unusual to see a Galatasaray, Fenerbahce, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily like, you know, in in the top two uh, places. And uh, so, Transmon Sports, a surprise. Istanbul, the success, you know, it's been there for a while. You know, it's a, it's a team that's been consolidated, you know, and, and doing quite well in the Turkish League. And Sivaspor, I mean, another surprise. And Besiktas, you know, sitting at fifth on the table, Fenerbahce seventh. It's pretty disappointing, but, you know, the overall quality, you know, I have to question about the Turkish League. Um, I've seen it, you know, the channel I was working for, you know, we, we used to cover that as well. I was very disappointed about, you know, the, the uh, yeah, some of the quality of the games, but also, uh, unfortunately for the Turkish League, this time, you know, a lot of, you know, all the players, you know, more or less going to so, so many retirements, especially in the Antalya Sport, is uh, more or less, you know, a sea resort, like for tourists. And it seems, you know, they enjoy more the sun more than playing football over there. Yeah, sometimes you would probably think, okay, I remember this player in this team five or six years ago. Where could he be now? So you can go to the squads of Turkish League and you can be sure you will find that player there. Yeah, Antalya Spor. Skirtle, obviously, has had a good few years there. And I remember doing Fenerbahce against Galatasaray a couple of years ago for Fox Sports Africa, great channel, uh, on St. Patrick's Day. And from studio, so having to fight, you know, watch my St. Patrick's Day Parade down in Carlo, fight through that, get on the train, go up to Dublin, fight through the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin in order to do, you know, one of the biggest derbies. We were getting audio in, but no pictures. And the technicians three hours before kickoff were saying, we're getting the wrong audio because we're hearing crowd noise from the stadium. And of course, it was the right audio because the stadium was already full hours beforehand. And it finished nil-nil, sadly, which was a bit of a shame. But, I mean, it is one of the prime. We were talking about the Belgrade derby as well. But that is also one of the prime atmospheres in European football. Yeah, absolutely. And now, when BT is planting the flag of the Turkish football into British soil, they have to invite Graham Sunnis to commentate on it. That is a great line. Unfortunately, he is a sky man, and I'm not sure he'll be lent to them, but... That would be a wonderful they thing. They should allow wonderful him thing. to do it. They should allow him. Um, I know Virgin, who have him on for the Champions League in Ireland, they have asked him about it a good few times. I think the story he often tells about it is that he didn't realise that it would be interpreted in such a way, but how else could it be interpreted? It's like planting a Rangers flag at Celtic. He'd know about, a lot about that. No, that was an insult. <laughs> Okay, I can cut that out if you like. <laughs> a Liverpool flag at Everton. I'm just looking at the Basaksa here squad. Gael Clichy, Mehmet Topal, Demba Ba, Martin Skirtle, Rubinho, Gokken Inler. This is brilliant. This is the League of Stars. Like, you know, fo- football nostalgia, you know, yeah. for all those fans who remember those players. Galatasaray, Radamal Falcao, Ryan Donk. On it goes, Florian Andone, on loan from Brighton. Henry Onyakuru, we know a lot about him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everton, yeah. Monaco, Anderlecht. Wow. So it's it's quite a league. Antalya Sport, you know, the sea result. You have a Brazilian guy called Charles, Gustavo, Lucas Podolski. I thought he was retired. <laughs> Chico, Brazil. Ruth Bofin from Belgium, if you remember. Ali Sissoko, French guy. Uh, it's not that, in fact, not that bad. I was expecting it to be more like, you know, uh, all the players over there. And if you look at Besiktas, you've got 
you know, George Kevin and Kudu. You've got Atiba Hutchinson, the Canadian Germain Lawns, uh, formerly at Ajax. Kevin Prince Boateng. I mean, come on, this is the best. This is the best league in the world. This is great. Yeah, yeah. Well, well uh, kind of. It's, 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 yeah, the Mohamed Al-Nani as well is on loan at Besiktas now. Oh, so yeah. it's a good thing for them to have it because there are a lot of names people will be familiar with. Alanya Spore have got Papa Cisse, Junior Fernandez, Fabrice Ensacala, but they've also got Stephen Corker. I mean, gosh. So the past 48 hours, we've seen Manchester City's new assistant coach join up with Pep Guardiola. It is one me, Leo. And we have mentioned him a couple of times previously, Dimitro. He has coached just about everywhere. Most recently, he's been in China, was in Japan prior to that. But also Atletico Nacional in Colombia. Also in Mexico, where Pep Guardiola first really linked up with him. So maybe give us a potted history of his career to date. Well, yeah, he's been managing in so many different places. And when he was uh, in Mexico, Pep Guardiola wanted to go specifically to that side to be managed by Juan Malilio because Juan Malilio is one of the best, if we talk about theory of football, especially Juego de Posición that Pep is so uh, keen on. So Juan Malilio is very widely quoted by those who write about this particular style of play. So it's more about what he can bring as a theoretician than as a coach or manager, because exercises he can come up with, evaluation of the plays, some suggestions and ideas. So he is a mentor for Pep Guardiola in a way, because of course Guardiola spoke to Bielsa before becoming a manager, and he had an example of Cruyff uh, playing uh, for him for so long. But Lilio is in that circle of those who Guardiola always admired. So that appointment seems pretty logical then. You're getting a guy you want to work with. You know that the guy probably will not leave the club for a job elsewhere because he's done so many jobs in the last few years. And he's getting an opportunity also to work with a place of the highest caliber. And when you mentioned Colombia, it's interesting to talk about Millonarios as well, because his first job in Colombia was with Millonarios in Bogota. And uh, just recently, Mayer Candelo, one of the best playmakers in the Colombian league for years, uh, said that he was really sorry that he had Juan Malillo as a manager when he was over 30 and not when he was 20, because he said that Lilio taught him more than any other manager he's ever worked with. And we're talking here about very good player. And the other thing is that he was the assistant at Chile right at the end of Sampaoli's reign there when they won the back-to-back Copa Americas in 2015 and 2016. And in the case of Sampaoli also, he has learned, if you like, at the feet of... Bielsa, so there's almost like a grand circle being drawn here, the way that Bielsa's name keeps coming up every so often. And now Lilo is at Manchester City alongside Pep Guardiola. And I mean, the success that he's had, but also the places he's coached, like Dorado's in, in Mexico being a prime example of that, because like Guardiola could have had a very, very lucrative contract right at the end of his career, played in the Middle East and earned millions a year, and instead wanted to go to, 
you know, not even one of the top sides of Mexico. Quite an unglamorous place. No, they actually were fighting for survival. And since uh, the relegation uh, is decided in Mexico on the Promedios, they had a good tournament, but they couldn't compensate for previous bad tournaments. And the team actually went down after that season. But Guardiola wasn't going there to win titles. He wanted to learn. He wanted to become a manager. And uh, Loco Abreu, the famous Uruguayan player, also was with uh, Dorados at the time, uh, said that after every training session, Guardiola would ask Clelio, what did we do? Why did we do? And how it could help the team and uh, each and every player. So the big question, I suppose, then is, I mean, obviously Guardiola has been an admirer for so long. Do you then see Manchester City's style changing? What is it that Lilo will bring that will be translated on the pitch, do you think? He is one of those who is actually behind that kind of thinking on the pitch, the positional game. And it sort of reinforces the ideas that Guardiola might have. Sometimes you just probably think that he could have worked with Pep even earlier in some other clubs, but, well, it only happens now with uh, Monsetti. He's 54 years old, and like a, a number of interesting coaches, he actually started coaching very young, uh, at the age of 16, which is astonishing. And a league side, the Tessera, Tolosa, he took charge at the age of 20. So we're talking about somebody who is, who is quite unique, yeah, he's, he's from Tolosa, that's his uh, hometown, actually a town quite famous for bringing a lot of uh, good footballers. But his first real success in Spain, uh, the one that gave him prominence, was with uh, Salamanca in the 90s, when he took him from Segunda B to Primera, to the first division. He was sacked during the season after 28 games. With 14 rounds to go, they were only four points off, but they were struggling at the bottom. So that's a typical decision sometimes for the club owner. I'll get someone else and maybe that person can save the club. No, it didn't happen. But Lilio was very well known at the time. He was even credited with inventing 4-2-3-1. But... Well, we probably shouldn't be getting into that. That's probably a long story for another day. That's it for now. We'll be back Monday, actually, with a look at the opening weekends in Spain and Turkey and maybe even Iceland, depending what mood we're in. So thank you very much as usual. Same old story. Please like and rate and subscribe across the various platforms if you enjoy what you're getting from us. Until next time, from Dimitri Julai, Stefan Johnny, Mark Rodden and me, Will Downing, it is... Goodbye. Look after yourselves.